When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome in, everybody, to episode 197 of the podcast that is Sweeping America, the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Great show today, people. So here's the deal. There are times when I do this show, and I'm just going to be honest. I'm going to pull back the curtain. There are times when I do this show where I'm sitting there putting together the show rundown, preparing my notes, and I say, man, what the hell am I going to talk about today? Oh, my God, I got to talk about the transfer portal, or I got to talk about basketball transfers, or like I got to talk about whatever. And then you get a day like today where there is so much information, and I'm not exaggerating when I say this, it took me probably 20 minutes just to figure out what I'm going to lead the show with. Am I going to lead the show with James Wiseman? I'm known as a basketball guy. I know more about James Wiseman. I'm going to tell you stuff about James Wiseman that nobody else will tell you about. Or am I going to lead with football? LSU Bama, a potential changing of the guard in the SEC. What am I going to do? Where should I start? And so I had this internal debate. I eventually did decide the rundown will go as follows. We are going to start with LSU Bama. The game was just too big. It was too monumental. It is, in fact, the heart of football season. And it is the fact, uh, it is, in fact, the middle, the heart of college football season and the playoff chase and all the things that we love. And as big as James Wiseman is, I don't know that it's bigger than what happened in Alabama on Saturday, where not only did LSU win, but I think we saw potentially a seismic changing of the guard in the SEC. We saw a, a new Heisman favorite. We saw a new potential number one team in the country. The playoff picture is a mess. And I think I would be doing you guys a disservice to not talk about football to lead the show. I will say, however, that you better stick around for James Wiseman. If you want James Wiseman, I would guess it'll probably be about the 30 to 35 minute mark. I'm, I'm doing this live, so I can't tell you off the top of my head. But if you want James Wiseman, I can tell you definitively. I am going to have information that no one else is going to have, no one else is going to share. You guys know I am college basketball. I tell you how it is. I tell you the dirt underneath the fingernails. I tell you how stuff really goes down. And I'm telling you, I got stuff on James Wiseman that you are never going to hear anywhere else. And so I encourage you to stick around for that segment. But I do feel as though I do have to start football. I'll talk LSU, Bama, maybe a little bit on Minnesota. And then Arkansas, where Arkansas has a new head football coach, or they don't have the old one because Chad Morris was fired right before I started recording this show. Before we do get started, I want to remind everybody, and this is important, 
please make sure you subscribe to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. You can do it on iTunes. You can do it on Podcast Addict. If you have an Android, Podcast Addict is the way to go. That's where I subscribe and listen to this show. You can listen on Pod Paradise, TuneIn Radio. You can listen on Spotify too. So wherever you listen to podcasts, this show is available. Make sure that you're subscribed. Also, please make sure to rate and review the show. You can give us a quick five stars. Tell us what you like. Tell us what you don't like. Basically, just tell me, AT, you're the Ed Orgeron of podcasting. All you do is win, win, win. You're not a Chad Morris. You're an Ed Orgeron. Or you're a uh, you're a John Calipari or Coach K. You're not a Penny Hardaway. You don't cut corners. You don't pay for stuff to get done that you can do yourself. You get it done. So give me five stars. That analogy didn't even make sense, but whatever. It's Sunday morning. I'm fired up. I got to go to the airport to pick up family. And so I'm trying to get this show in because I love you guys that much. So make sure to rate and review the show. Also, Instagram, Aaron underscore Torres underscore sports underscore podcast on Instagram. And if you have any questions, Aaron Torres podcast questions at gmail.com. We'll do some mailbags as the season goes on, but right now there's just way too much going on in college sports. I would also add, I told you this a few days ago, if, 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 if you're going to be in Vegas for the CBS Sports Classic, that is on December 21st, it is a college basketball doubleheader, Ohio State, Kentucky, and UCLA, North Carolina. If you're going to be in Vegas for that, hit me up. Because I'm trying to do a get-together. I'm trying to do something fun for the listeners of the show. We'll do a live show if there's stuff to talk about. But even if not, we'll do a happy hour. We'll do something fun. Um, and I'm trying to get a headcount for what is a realistic number that we can get. I've probably had about a dozen of you reach out. I would love to do something with you guys. So if you're going to be there, hit me up on Twitter. Shoot me a DM, Aaron underscore Torres. Email me, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions. I have a list going for those of you who have reached out, as soon as I have details, I promise I will let you know if we end up doing something, I would say still about 60-40, trying to figure out if there's a place to do it, what the place would be, what the event would look like. So just keep me updated. But enough small talk, because we have to get into the story of the day, the story of the season in college football, where as I said, We had a changing of the guard in college football on Saturday afternoon in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. You all watched it. You don't need me to tell you, but LSU 46, Alabama 41. And if you watch the game, and I know you guys all did watch the game, the final score is not reflective of what actually happened between the white lines of Bryant-Denny Stadium, where LSU was the better team to begin with, where LSU was... Uh, dominant. They were up 33-13 to at halftime. They forced Alabama into a million unforced errors. And we are going to talk about Bama, by the way, in a minute, what this means for them, what this means for their season. Can they actually even get back into the playoff picture? But we do want to start with LSU. And it's like I was saying, completely dominant effort. They were up 33-13 to at halftime. They basically seal the game with a touchdown with 137 left. Bama puts up a late touchdown to make it 46-41, but it was really a two-possession game, and it just shows you, like I said a minute ago, that there may be a changing of the guard in the SEC. And there are so many big-picture ramifications, but I want to start with the very narrow picture, which is this. Did you guys notice how much that win meant to LSU? It's crazy, right? Because 
we love college sports and we, we, we follow it, but there are times where the win doesn't mean as much to the fans or the coaches or the players as it does to us. Yeah, when you win a championship or you go to a Final Four or you go to a college football playoff, but, you know, let's be honest. Like, does, does, does beating uh, the old state, the state rival always mean as much to the players as the fans? Not always. But in the case of LSU-Bama, you could just tell. It had been since 2011 that LSU had beaten Alabama. So imagine your biggest rival. It's now been eight straight years since you've beaten them. Oh, by the way, LSU lost to Alabama in 2011. After they beat them in the regular season, they lose to them in the national championship game. And then you have the burden of the guy who has built Alabama into this juggernaut is the guy that used to be the head coach at LSU, who's Nick Saban. And so I can tell you as somebody who goes on radio in Baton Rouge, I have friends in Baton Rouge, I have obviously a lot of followers in Baton Rouge, some listeners of this show in Baton Rouge. This wasn't just a football game. This was so much more than a football game. This was eight years of frustration, eight years of seeing the guy that used to be on your sidelines, now on the rival sideline, kicking your butt up and down the field. You never have an answer. And by the way, it's not like LSU has been bad over the last couple years. LSU was a top 10 team last year. They lost 29 to nothing to Bama at home. Uh, there was a couple years ago when Leonard Fournette was the Heisman favorite. LSU was top four in the country. Bama kicks their butt. And it was year after year after year after year after year banging your head against the wall wondering, is this ever going to happen? And, ooh, buddy, was it worth the wait at, LSU, uh, at Bama for LSU? And you can't tell me that that one didn't mean a little bit more to the guys on that roster, right? Like, like I was thinking about this. They gave Coach Orgeron, they gave Ed Orgeron, Coach O, a Gatorade bath after that win. When is the last time you saw a head coach get a Gatorade bath during a regular season game if it wasn't a historic win, win, win 200, win 300, if it wasn't to clinch a regular season championship, whatever, what, you don't get Gatorade baths for games in early November, but it meant so much to this team, it meant so much to this program, and it meant so much to this state. And I think the reason that it meant so much was the reasons that I mentioned. I think the reason that it felt so good was because, like I said, LSU was the dominant team. And I was thinking about this as I was preparing for this show. I can't ever remember a college football program completely flipping the narrative in one season quite like LSU. Now look, there's been coaches that take over that flip things pretty quick. Urban Meyer, in literally 10 minutes, took Ohio State from 6-6 six and six to 12-0. and 0. Urban Meyer's that good. Alabama, Nick Saban, by year two, had them in the national championship game. But Ed Orgeron came to LSU, got the interim job, was successful early, won nine games last year, but still... They were still, this was still the team that lost 29 to nothing to Alabama last year in Baton Rouge. And now they're going to Bama and kicking the crap up and down the field out of Bama? I've never seen anything like that. I've never seen anything like what LSU has become over the last couple of years. And so I think it's a credit to a few people. First of all, it's a credit to Coach O. I've said this on this podcast many times. I will continue to say it. Take that old VHS tape of the blind side and bury it in the backyard. Because the dude from that movie, the dude from Ole Miss, the dude that used to rip off his shirt in meetings, that guy's dead. The guy that is at LSU now is a completely different guy, and he is one of the best coaches in college football, bar none. I get it. 
Nick Saban has the pedigree. Dabo Sweeney has the pedigree. Multiple national championships. I'm not saying Ed Orgeron's better than those guys. But, man, you start talking about other guys? Look at Coach O's resume over the last year, year and a half. I use this stat all the time, but it's so important. Since the start of the 2018 season, so just since last September, September 2018, here are the coaches that Ed Orgeron has head-to-head wins against. Just beat Nick Saban. Beat Kirby Smart last year. Beat Dan Mullen this year. Beat Tom Herman this year. He's beaten Gus Malzahn twice. Beat Mark Richt. That's a pretty impressive list. Saban, Saban, um, Kirby Smart, Tom Herman, Gus Malzahn twice, Dan Mullen. Like, that's an incredible list, Mark Richt. That's insane. And so it's been a complete rebirth for Ed Orgeron, and I love the way he's built this program. I put this on Twitter, too. This is a guy, and for all of you out there listening, some of you are in your car, some of you are at the gym, some of you are bosses of people. And this is what I love about what Ed Orgeron has done at LSU. He has taken less money as the boss, as the head of the program, and given more money to his coordinators, hired the best coordinators possible, and gotten the heck out of the way. Joe Brady, the new offensive coordinator, he came in and handed the keys to the system to the to Joe Brady, a 30-something-year-old coordinator, and said, do your thing. Make this work. Make us an explosive offense. I'm getting out of your way. Dave Aranda, highest-paid defensive coordinator in college football, did the same thing. He said, you're running the defense. I'm getting out of your way. He hired smart people, put them in power. By the way, I don't know what he's doing behind those four walls at LSU, but whoo! Those players play hard for him. They love him. And so I love him because I think he has so many life lessons that we can all learn from, right? He was the guy that failed at his first attempt at being a head coach. A lot of these guys don't get a second chance. Instead, he does get the second chance, technically at USC, where there's still USC fans mad that he's not the head coach there. But he technically gets it at USC, has success there, goes to LSU, gets the interim job, completely flips his program, The players believe in him. The coaches coach for him. And I've never seen anything quite like it. It's just absolutely incredible. The year-over-year change where now we're talking about LSU. And I'm just telling you this right now. LSU will be the number one team in the country when the new poll comes out later this week. And for people who don't follow this stuff day in and day out, Ohio State was the number one team on Tuesday. They obviously revealed that in the middle of the Champions Classic after Duke beat Kansas, before Kentucky beat Michigan State. Um, Ohio State was number one. And I think, honestly, you can make the strong argument they should have been. They've completely dominated everybody they've played. But you look at what LSU has now done. You look at the fact that their wins are just insane. They beat Bama at Bama. They beat Texas at Texas, and I know Texas has struggled a little bit, but still, you went to Texas and won. That's a pretty big deal. You beat Florida. You beat Auburn. And you beat them all decisively. I mean, Texas was a tough back-and-forth game, but LSU was the better team. Auburn was a three-point game, but LSU was the better team. And so when I look at what Coach O has done, I think there's no doubt in my mind that this will be the number one team in the country going into this college football conversation. I don't know if they'll stay there. I don't know if they'll stay there because, obviously, look, Ohio State still has Penn State. They still have Michigan. They may play an undefeated Minnesota in the Big Ten championship game, which would be insane. So I'm not saying they'll stay there forever, but LSU will be the number one team in the country. I'll take it a step further. Joe Burrow, I think, just unofficially locked up the Heisman. And that was one of my other takeaways from Saturday. 
is I just talked about the, the transformation of LSU. I've never seen a guy like Joe Burrow in all my years covering college football. This was a guy that, first of all, let's never forget, he lost the starting job last year or a couple years ago to Dwayne Haskins at Ohio State. And you look at him leaving Ohio State, but then on top of that, um, this was a guy that was awful against against uh, Alabama last year. Zero points. LSU got shut out. Zero points scored by LSU against Alabama. And now this guy's thrown for 393 yards, almost 500 yards of total offense, leading this high-powered attack. This is one of the greatest stories I've ever seen. Couldn't win the starting job at Ohio State. Uh, transfers, gets beat up for a year, and now here we are a year later, and this guy's going to win the Heisman, 33 touchdowns, four interceptions after Saturday night's game. And so I just think LSU is an unbelievable story. Um, Coach Orgeron has completely rewritten his narrative. I think they're, I think they're probably the favorite in college football right now. I understand how great Ohio State is. This isn't a knock on Ohio State. They've been the most complete team in college football. But you can't tell me that LSU has gone through the gauntlet that they've gone through and that they are not, right now, I think the favorite to win the national championship. Now look, could things change? They could. But I don't believe that they will. And I just think that LSU, if they went out, so first of all, they're going to win the rest of the regular season games. They play at Ole Miss and they end at Arkansas, who again just fired Chad Morris and Texas A&M at home. I can't see them losing any of those three games, but I'll tell you this. They beat Georgia in the SEC championship game. They will be the number one seed in the college football playoff. So incredible day for LSU. Now, really quick, I do want to get into Bama because Bama now, I think, is as fascinating as LSU. LSU, this monumental day. Uh, you're dumping Gatorade on Ed Orgeron. It's this amazing, amazing, amazing moment. And then on the other side, you have Alabama. And I'll tell you this. This was one of the most bizarre Bama performances that I've ever seen in this sense. They've gotten their butts kicked before. Last year in the championship game against Clemson, by the way. But man, not only did they get their butts kicked, they beat themselves on Saturday. First of all, they couldn't stop anything on defense. And I think that this was the conversation coming in was that this was not a historic Bama defense, and we're going to get into it in a minute, but I think that for most of this season, Tua has covered up kind of a lot of warts and a lot of problems that this team has because Tua has been so awesome. So when Tua plays good but not great like on Saturday, you're going to have problems, and Bama certainly had problems, but they also didn't help themselves. Tua on the first possession was running in uncontested for a touchdown run and fumbled the ball completely out of nowhere covered by LSU. Uh, they had a muffed punt. They had a couple really bad penalties. Jerry Judy, who I think is about the most reliable wide receiver I've ever seen at the college level, dropped a for sure touchdown pass at another couple drops. And so this was a, 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 just a disastrous performance by Alabama. And I do think it raises two very interesting questions with Bama specifically. I think the first one, you guys know what it is. Can Bama even get back into the playoff conversation? And I think the answer is yes, and I'm going to explain why. I think the real question that Bama fans are asking is, even if we can get back into the playoff conversation, like, man, based on what we saw, we were at home. We played LSU. Do we have? That's the question. Not can we get in, but if we do get in, do we have any chance against LSU? Do we have any chance against Ohio State or Clemson? And I think that's a real question 
So starting with the first question, can Bama get back in? I saw a lot of people say, it's over for Bama. They can't do it. It's over. They, they're not getting in the playoff. I don't buy that, and I'll tell you why. First of all, when the new playoff poll comes out this week, the top three is very clear. In whatever order, it's going to be LSU, Ohio State, Clemson. I think that's ultimately the order, but if Ohio State's still number one, I'm not going to freak out. If Clemson's ahead of Ohio State, I'm not going to freak out. But I do think that LSU, Ohio State, Clemson are locked in at one, two, and three. And then you get past them, and you start to say, like, well, shoot, who's number four? We got to get four teams in this playoff, right? Like, like sometimes there's too many good teams. This year, I don't know who number four is. Is it Georgia, who probably has the worst loss out of any of the contenders? They lost to South Carolina, which South Carolina, by the way, lost to Appalachian State this week. Um, is it Georgia? Is it Minnesota? Minnesota, undefeated 9-0 Minnesota who just beat Penn State, they probably have a better win than Alabama, Georgia, Oregon. Their best win, Penn State at home, is better than anybody else's best win. And so is it Minnesota at number four? Is it Oregon, which is 8-1 and one, coming off that win at the Coliseum? Is it even Alabama? So one, I'm just fascinated to see on Tuesday what the committee decides to do at number four. But then the question for Bama becomes, can they play themselves back in? And I think the answer is yes. Now, what's hurting Bama, and this isn't a big secret, it's not as though I'm breaking some incredible news here, but Bama basically has no real great wins on their resume, and it is going to be a challenge when you start stacking up head-to-head wins, because Bama's best win right now is against an awful Texas A&M team, but their best potential win, because they're not going to play in the SEC championship game now, LSU has locked that up all but certainly. Alabama's best potential win is Auburn. And Auburn, I don't know if you pay attention, Auburn is probably going to end up 8-4 and four in the regular season. They already have lost to LSU and, and Florida, and they still have Georgia next week and Alabama down the road. So if Alabama beats uh, Auburn, they're at best Auburn a 9-3 and three team and at worst an 8-4 and four team, and I don't know how impressive that is going to be in the eyes of the committee. So they don't have the great win, I will say they do have the best loss, though. They're going to lose to the number one team in the country, LSU, and it's going to be fascinating down the stretch. Now, what I do think has to happen, there has to be some degree of chaos, right? Certain things have to fall Alabama's way. First of all, LSU's got to beat Georgia. I mean, if LSU's got to win out, they've got to knock out Georgia. That's got to be out of the conversation. I would say the Big 12 has to beat itself up because right now we have Oklahoma at 8-1. We have Baylor at 9-0. Baylor still has to play Oklahoma and Texas. Oklahoma and Baylor play this weekend. And so you got to get a situation where all those teams knock each other out. But even if they don't, I don't know that Oklahoma, the way Oklahoma's playing, if they're 12-1, I don't know that they have an open and shut case definitively that they're better than Alabama this year. I mean, their defense gave up 41 points the other night, gave up 41 points on Saturday to Iowa State. Is that a team that's definitively better than Alabama? I don't know. Now, maybe the trump card of beating Baylor twice will be enough, but Alabama does need probably a little bit of chaos there. The interesting one to me, this is the one that's so interesting to me, is the Pac-12, because this is where it gets fascinating. Oregon, if they run the table, they'll be a 12-1 Pac-12 champion, okay? But their loss would be to Auburn. 
and their loss would be to an Auburn team that Alabama just beat. And so I think that would be a very serious playoff conundrum. And can you imagine being in the playoff selection committee room and you're sitting there saying, Bama's 11-1 and and they really don't look good and they got their butts kicked by LSU. Oregon's playing really well. They just won the Pac-12. Maybe they beat an 11-1 and Utah team to, to win the Pac-12. But man, they also lost to Auburn. Now I can see both sides to it. I can see part of the committee saying, listen, they lost in week one on basically a last second Hail Mary. Um, and like we can't hold it against them that they lost on a last second Hail Mary to Auburn and they've gotten better every week since and they won 12 straight games and they won the Pac-12. But you also got to remember, the college football playoff committee is filled with a lot of former head coaches and a lot of football guys. We all love our football guys, right? And those football guys are going to be sitting there saying, yeah, but head-to-head matters. And Alabama has the head-to-head win over Auburn, and Oregon has the head-to-head loss. Wins and losses have to matter. Otherwise, what's the point of even playing these games? And so because of it, I think that's the big trump card. Alabama has two trump cards. They don't have any great wins, and they probably won't. But their their loss is going to be really good. And that head-to-head win against Auburn, if they can get it, I think it's going to be a trump card over Oregon, a potential one-loss Pac-12 champ. Now, maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe Oregon and Utah beat each other up. Maybe they both finish with two losses. Maybe the Pac-12 champ has two losses. Maybe the Big 12 champ has two losses. And maybe Bama gets in. But I don't think it's as open and shut as people are saying. Now, I think the bigger question, if Bama gets in, is this a team that can actually beat some of the elite teams in college football? Because let's not forget that this Bama team just played um, just played LSU, who's going to be in the playoff, and they got their butts kicked at home. And so if you can't beat LSU at home, I don't know why you think you're going to be able to beat them on a neutral field. And by the way, this, is, this wasn't 2011, the 9-6 to game, when LSU barely beats Bama at home and then Bama crushes them in the, in the national semifinals. This was LSU was definitively the better team in Tuscaloosa. And so because of it, I think it's fair to ask, if Bama couldn't beat that LSU team, if LSU just went up and down the field, up and down the field, I don't know what chance Bama has against LSU. Clemson, say what you want about Clemson. I've been critical of Clemson, but they are playing really well over the last four or five weeks. Ohio State continues to be dominant. And it's like I said a minute ago with Alabama, is that I think there are real problems in terms of, I think Tua really covered up a lot of the issues for Bama. I'm looking at the stats right now. Alabama, which historically has been one of the best defenses in college football every year since Nick Saban's got there. They're currently sixth in the SEC in total defense. Behind Georgia, behind Missouri, behind Florida, behind Auburn, behind Texas A&M. They are sixth in total defense. They are fifth in passing yards. They are fifth in rushing yards. Just in the SEC. I'm not talking about nationally. I'm not talking about the top 10. I'm talking about in the SEC. They are a middle-of-the-pack defense. And I don't believe that that defense against an Ohio State, against an LSU, against a um, whoever, against a, a Clemson, I don't know that that Alabama team wins that game. And so that's what's fascinating to me. I don't buy the narrative that Alabama's playoff picture is dead just yet. They're going to have chances. Other teams are going to beat each other. We might get an upset somewhere along the way. But the bigger question is, 
Could Bama compete with those other teams if they got into the playoff? And I think right now the answer is no. I think right now the answer is no. All right, I'm going to get into the other big college football news of the day. Uh, and then we'll talk some James Wiseman. And I'm telling you, stick around for James Wiseman because I don't think that there is anywhere that you're going to get the information on James Wiseman that you get from me here on this show. All right, so here's the deal with Chad Morris. He's gone. He's, his career is over. He was the Arkansas head coach. And for the second week in a row, a second-year head coach has been fired. So last week it was Willie Taggart. Uh, and I was very adamant, like, I don't agree with, with firing a second-year head coach. But it happens. And this is big boy football. And these guys get paid millions of dollars. And you have to show signs of improvement. Willie Taggart didn't do it. Uh, and he was fired last week. And Chad Morris was fired this week. And listen, again, I'm a general advocate of you got to give a guy three, sometimes four years, especially because of the fact that Brett Bielema left that program a complete disaster. He basically stopped recruiting the last couple years. Chad Morris actually brought in, to his credit, maybe the only thing he did well, was he did bring in a good recruiting class last year, but that was kind of the problem, right? Was their whole roster, their best players on the roster, were true freshmen this year. And so we saw the results. We saw the fact that they are now 2-8 and eight after, start, after going 2-10 and 10 last year. 2018, they go 2-10 and 10 in Chad Morris's first year, 0-8 in the SEC. This year, they're 2-8, and eight, still winless in the SEC. And oh, by the way, I should probably mention they haven't played LSU yet, so there's a very good chance that they were going to lose to LSU and lose to Missouri to end the year. Once again, 2-10 and 10 and 0-8 and in the SEC. But I, I will give Arkansas fans credit for this. I think even if Chad Morris had gone 0-8 in the SEC this year, you could have justified bringing him back. Where Chad Morris lost the fan base is two reasons. First of all, you can't lose to San Jose State in week four of this season. I don't know if you know this. San Jose, not a state. Yet they have a football team that went to Fayetteville and beat Arkansas. But then this was the death knell. You lose by 30 to Western Kentucky on Saturday in Fayetteville. And that was the one where it was just like, okay, I don't think you can bring back this coach after he just lost by 30 to Western Kentucky. And I'd add this, Western Kentucky starting quarterback began his career at Arkansas. Chad Morris brought in his own guys. This guy left, goes to Western Kentucky and gets the win. So first of all, that's why he's gone. It's not because they lost to Ole Miss or they got smoked by Mississippi State. Or they got smoked by Bama. They got smoked by Auburn. It's because you lost to San Jose State and you lost to Western Kentucky. But here is the bigger issue, and here is where Arkansas fans have frustration, and I actually agree with them. Arkansas fans, I give them credit. They remind me of Tennessee fans in the sense that, that when, when things are going bad with their football program, I've never met an Arkansas fan that when they're losing to San Jose State or they're losing to Western Kentucky or they're getting smoked by Alabama, none of them are saying, you know what, we... We should be beating Bama. We should be winning a national championship. I've never had an Arkansas fan say, we should be a national championship contender. What an Arkansas fan wants is what any fan wants. During a rebuild, an Arkansas fan wants to know that things are going in the right direction. That there is improvement. I said it a few weeks ago when I was talking about Chad Morris's play sheet that was the size of Ecuador. Is like, say what you want, but you look across the SEC. There is no doubt... That, that Tennessee is improving under Jeremy Pruitt. There is no doubt that Ole Miss is improving under Matt Luke. 
Vanderbilt has had moments. Heck, Mississippi State has had moments as bad as Joe Moorhead has been. Obviously, look, Kentucky's a well-coached team. A&M's a well-coached team. But Arkansas was the one that it was like, not only are you not winning, we're not even seeing signs of improvement. And I think that's where the Arkansas fans got frustrated is, first of all, I mentioned the two bad losses. You lose to San Jose State. Then a week later, you come out and you actually play Texas A&M tough. You go into a bye and you think, okay, yeah, we just lost to San Jose State. But at that point, Arkansas was 2-2. Two and two. You lose to Texas A&M. It's a close game. You have a chance to win. And you think, okay, things are going in the right direction. Then you come out of a bye. You go to Kentucky where you lose when Kentucky is playing a fourth-string quarterback, Lynn Bowden, who was once a wide receiver. You just can't do that. You can't do that. And then from there, it only got worse. You get smoked by Auburn. You get smoked by Alabama. You get smoked by Mississippi State. And you, of course, lose to Western Kentucky. So... To me, that's where the issues come in. It's not that you're losing, it's how you're losing. And I'll tell you this, the first time that I really turned on Chad Morris, it was actually that Alabama game. And you guys remember, because I tweeted it. I said, look, when the spread came out, Arkansas was about a five-touchdown underdog to Alabama, and this was, of course, the week that Alabama was playing without Tua Tonga-Viola. You guys remember what I said, right? I said, if Arkansas can't beat... can't cover a 35-point spread against this Alabama team, the one that I just mentioned, is a middle-of-the-pack defensive team. If they can't cover a 35-point spread against Alabama without Tua against this middle-of-the-pack defense, then they need to shut down the program. And I was kind of joking, but I was kind of serious. Well, what happened? Arkansas goes to Bryant-Denny Stadium. It's 41 to nothing at halftime. It's 41 to nothing. And not only was it 41 nothing, It was every time they dropped back, the quarterback threw an interception. And every time they tried to run the ball, there was a fumble. And every time Bama ran the ball, there were missed tackles. And that was the problem. This team was not progressing. They were regressing. They couldn't do the simple things right. And by the way, that's why I got so mad about that stupid play sheet the size of South Dakota was because I said, you don't need a play sheet the size of South Dakota when your team can't tackle, when your team can't catch, when your team can't throw the ball without it being intercepted. They were getting worse every week. I would add that Chad Morris flip-flopped and juggled quarterbacks. And like at some point, you just got to stick with the quarterback. And I've, I've used the Mark Stoops analogy before. Give him credit. He found something that worked with Lynn Bowden. Lynn Bowden until, um, until unfortunately on Saturday. But it was working. And he stuck with it. And he stuck to it. And he said, this is our game plan now. We're running the ball 90% of the time. We're going to use uh, Bowden as a running back. We're, gonna, we're, gonna, um, we're going to uh, use the other running backs. And this is our identity now. And with Chad Morris, there was never an identity. There was never a, this is my quarterback and I'm sticking with him. I don't care. And there was never improvement and it was only getting worse. And so I, this is a case where I don't blame Arkansas for letting, getting rid of this coach after, um, after two and a half or one and a half seasons, not even two. And now the question becomes who's next. And I'll tell you this. I will say. (coughs) Excuse me, I had a little cough there. I will say, I have a reasonably good source at Arkansas. And no, it's not Eric Musselman, by the way, in case you're wondering. Not not the must bust. Um, I have a buddy who kind of just knows some things. He told me this Chad Morris thing was coming. He actually gave me the news probably a little bit before the, the news even became official. He gave me a, a couple names. I think that 
there's a couple names to just keep an eye on in general. And I think the big question becomes with Arkansas. Two things. One, I'll give their AD, Hunter Juracek, credit for this. Hunter Juracek uh, is their AD. And the one thing that I really respect about that guy is that he is a guy who, when things are going wrong, he doesn't wait. He doesn't overthink. He doesn't overanalyze. He moves. He did it in basketball with Mike Anderson. He said, this program is flatlining. They're not interesting. They're not improving. They're not getting better. They're not on an upward trajectory. I'm going to pull the ripcord, bring in somebody who will. That's Eric Musselman. We'll see if Mus does what he, what, what, you know, a lot of us, myself included, expect him to do. But he was very aggressive with the football hire, with the basketball hire, and I expect him to be very fo- aggressive with the football hire. Now, I think what becomes interesting is this. Generally, when you end up firing a coach, this is across football and basketball, when you end up firing a coach, you usually go with the opposite of the guy that you just had, right? So if you have a young guy, you bring in the old veteran guy. If you got a player's coach, you bring in a hard ass. If you got a hard ass, you bring in a player's coach. If you got an offensive guy, you go defensive. I mean, it's just, it's just nature, right? It's like when you break up with, with, with a significant other. You know, you're dating a jerk if you're a young lady. You're dating a jerk. You go for the nice guy. You date the nice guy. He's kind of boring. You go with the guy with the neck tattoo and the, the, the leather jacket, right? I don't know if guys still wear leather jackets, but that's neither here nor there. And I think it's the same thing with coaching hires and firings. And so to me, that's going to be the interesting thing about this Arkansas deal. Because I think the best candidate is Mike Norvell at Memphis. You look at Mike Norvell. Um, this is a guy that has Memphis at 8-1 and one this year. They won 10 games a few years ago. They've won eight games every single season he's been at Memphis. But he's an offensive guy, and he's coaching in the AAC. Well, Chad Morris was an offensive guy. Chad Morris came from the AAC before he got to Arkansas. And so does Hunter Juracek really go after that guy when he has such a similar profile to Chad Morris? I don't know. That's the first guy that I would go after. Beyond him, I'll tell you this. Like I said, I got somebody that knows some things. At Arkansas, he's telling me, don't sleep on, are you ready for this? Drum roll. Don't sleep on Lane Kiffin as a potential serious candidate at Arkansas. He just told me, look, Kiffin 7-3 this year. He won, I think, 11 or 10 games his first year. And he's actually been pretty good for the most part at Florida Atlantic. And say what you want about Kiffin but he'll make a splash. But again, he's an offensive guy. Do you go with him? Guy that I would consider, and I don't know if he wants the job because he's turned down a lot of stuff before, Brent Venables, the defensive coordinator at Clemson. That guy is unbelievable. He gets the most out of his defenses. And the one thing that you guarantee when you bring in Brent Venables, that is a guy who I promise you, his defenses will play hard. His players will play hard. But I don't know if he wants to leave Clemson. He's got a son on the team. He makes a lot of money. They're obviously winning at an insane level. And so I don't know if Brent Venables would be a candidate. I think the last one, the obvious one, is Gus Malzahn. Gus Malzahn, for people who don't follow college football day in and day out, he's from Arkansas. He started as a high school football coach there. A couple years ago when this job opened up and Chad Morris got it, Gus Malzahn actually almost got the job back then uh, before he ended up agreeing to an extension in Auburn. Well, you look at Auburn. Play Georgia this week. They play Alabama in a couple weeks. They lose both games, they're 8-4. and four. They lose both games, they've again lost to all their big rivals, LSU, Georgia, and Alabama. And I think Auburn fans would gladly 
push Gus Malzahn out the door to Arkansas. It's a question of whether Arkansas fans would want him. I don't know. I'll tell you this. I joked about it on Twitter. Uh, Bobby Petrino, rev up the Harleys, baby. Vroom, vroom, vroom. Rev up the Harleys. Let's go. Vroom, vroom. I don't see it happening. But, I mean, how amazing would that be? And for the younger crowd, you know, the crazy thing to me is, like, somebody under 25 probably doesn't really remember the Bobby Petrino thing because it happened 10 years ago. For people who don't get the reference, vroom, 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 rev up the Harleys. Uh, Bobby Petrino was the head coach at Arkansas probably the most successful coach in the modern era of Arkansas football. Now, look, they were good in like the 60s and the 50s, but probably the most successful head coach uh, in Arkansas history. And um, he got fired because he was riding his Harley and his mistress was on the back seat. And he crashed his Harley and the police report came out and he lied on the police report and his mistress was there. And so I'm just saying, uh, vroom, vroom. I would love to see Bobby Petrino come back. I don't think he will, though. Another name, by the way, everyone keeps talking about, Mike Leach. You wonder, Mike Leach, he, he's done it at Texas Tech. He's done it at Washington State. Could he potentially turn things around at Arkansas? All right, I was going to do stuff on Minnesota. I was going to do stuff on so much other, uh, so much more college football, but I just did 40 minutes on LSU, Bama, and Chad Morris, and I do want to get to this James Wiseman news. All right, so to, to, to fully explain this James Wiseman thing, first of all, let me paint you a picture. Let me paint you a picture of what AT, what your boy was doing Friday. Because Thursday, Thursday night was a little bit of a rough night. Me and the missus may have stayed out a little bit past our bedtime, maybe had a drink or two too many. Uh, and I was struggling most of the day thir- uh, Friday. And it got to about 3 o'clock, uh, probably about 2 o'clock Pacific, 5 o'clock Eastern. The Auburn-Davidson game was going to start. And you know what I wanted? I just wanted a little Subway. I wanted to get a little Subway. I felt like Happy Gilmore. I just wanted my 6-inch meatball sub. I wanted to come home. I wanted to watch the game. I'm at Subway. I'm in line. I'm about to pay. And all of a sudden, my phone starts blowing up. And it's going bananas. I mean, one call after the other, after the other, after the other. I'm like, what is going on? And of course, as you all know, James Wiseman, the projected uh, number one pick in next year's NBA draft, the number one ranked high school player in America last year, freshman at Memphis, potential superstar, potential NBA superstar, was ruled ineligible by the NCAA. Um, And I'm sitting there at Subway just trying to process everything, just trying to feel out everything, trying to figure out what's going on. And it was just insanity. And so we all know by now, Let me first kind of explain what happened, then I'll backtrack and kind of explain it, and then I'll give you the real details, the real stuff that you won't hear anywhere else. But as you know, James Wiseman suspended. I go on Periscope. I'm doing a Periscope. While I'm doing a Periscope, an injunction is served, and basically the courts have stepped in um, to, to basically give an injunction against the NCAA, allow James Wiseman to play on Friday night against Illinois Chicago. That injunction isn't going to hold up forever, and frankly, it really has no bearing on the NCAA at all. Like, if the NCAA continues to rule James Wiseman ineligible, then that win will not count against Illinois-Chicago. That will eventually count as a loss, and Memphis will kind of look probably pretty stupid for playing him. But let me kind of just explain everything to uh, people who are having trouble following the story or only know bits and pieces. And so, it really basically starts 
about three or four years ago, right? So James Wiseman, even as a freshman and sophomore in high school, uh, is emerging very quickly as one of the top-ranked high school players in his class. I mean, I remember my buddy Evan Daniels, he and I were working at Fox Sports at the time. I remember him telling me about James Wiseman three, four, five years ago when he was a freshman in high school and really emerging. Summer after his sophomore year, he really emerges James Wiseman as the guy in this class, as the guy with the most NBA potential, potential number one pick down the road, no different than a Cade Cunningham in 2020, no different than an Evan Mobley, whatever. And so the summer before his junior year, he plays for Penny Hardaway's AAU program. And in doing so, they obviously have success. They obviously build a relationship. And the following fall, James Wiseman follows Penny Hardaway, who is at that time, this is now the fall of 2018, or 2017 going into the 2018 school year, um, he follows Penny Hardaway to Memphis to play high school ball at Memphis. So number one player in the country, very simple to follow. Number one player in the country, high school player, uh, or AAU plays AAU with Penny Hardaway at the universe fourteen Penny. The following year transfers to Memphis to play for Penny Hardaway in high school. Penny Hardaway is again a high school coach at that point, and even then, I mean, if you really care about college basketball and you really kind of follow the nuance, even then it was kind of like eh, I don't know. I mean, because the difference is one. And listen, by the way, I'll never fault a player for wanting to play for a person the caliber of Penny Hardaway. Penny Hardaway had success as a high school coach before that, but more importantly, Penny Hardaway is a former NBA All-Star. I'm not going to blame a high school kid for wanting to play for a former NBA All-Star in high school and at the very least learn the ropes from that specific guy. I can't blame him. Listen, if Colin Cowherd five years ago, Colin's a friend of mine now, but if five years ago he wanted to take me uh, under his wing for an internship in broadcasting and podcasting and radio, uh, I'm not going to say no. Like, like, So I get it from James Wiseman's perspective, but if you looked at it from the 30,000-foot view of NCAA rules, is this kind of sketchy under kind of the rules that exist in the NCAA? Yeah, like it kind of was because it wasn't as though – James Wiseman, and to backtrack, James Wiseman's originally from Nashville, so it wasn't as though he was already in Memphis and he just uh, was going to a different high school. He moved across the state specifically to play for Penny Hardaway, and the crazy part is they played at East High School. East High School is a public school, and from my understanding, and I'm not being critical, I'm not trying to make this a socioeconomic thing, my understanding is it's not even a particularly good high school. It's not like it's transferring to either an Oak Hill Academy or a Montverde or a private school or even a really good academic school, it was a public school in Memphis. And the only logical reason to transfer to said public school in Memphis is to play for its coach, Penny Hardaway, when you played for him the summer before. Again, I don't blame James Wiseman. If you have the chance to play for Penny Hardaway, I don't blame him for doing it. But obviously the question becomes, well, why would you do it? Uh, or how does it happen, or what's the stuff going on behind the scenes? Now, I even remember at the time there was this narrative of, oh, like, well, James Wiseman's sister goes to school in Memphis, uh, at the University of Memphis, and it would just make sense to be closer to the family. Listen, families don't move across the state to be closer to their kid in college. Um, It doesn't happen, unless, of course, there's ulterior reasons, and in this case, it was James Wiseman wanting to go play for Penny Hardaway. And again, for the last time, I don't blame him for wanting to play for Penny Hardaway. But still, even at the time, like I said, it didn't really feel right. 
And it brings us back to full circle for on Friday because Penny Hardaway obviously brings James Wiseman to Memphis. At the time, it felt sketchy. James Wiseman event or, or Penny Hardaway eventually gets the Memphis head coaching job in April of 2018. James Wiseman stays in Memphis to play his high school ball, and James Wiseman commits to the University of Memphis. And so we find out on Friday, this is what we find out. We find out that Penny Hardaway personally paid for James Wiseman's family to move to Memphis. And obviously they move to Memphis, they claim it's to be closer to the sister, but the reality is it's to play for Penny to play for Penny Hardaway in high school, and eventually Penny Hardaway gets the college job and of course he moves uh, Penny, Har- Penny Hardaway moves, uh, I'm getting tripped up, I'm going too fast here. Penny Hardaway gets the college job, James Wiseman goes there. Where it gets complicated is two things. One, by technicality, Penny Hardaway, because he has given the University of Memphis money, is considered a booster. And so that's where the NCAA jumps in and says, like, we kind of had to do something here because, one, you're a booster. So for people who say, oh, like this isn't a big deal. He should be allowed to play where he wants to play and play for who he wants to play for. Like, listen, we have these rules in place, and this is an egregious violation of the rules. No different than if um, some oil tycoon in Texas decides, I'm going to pay for the number one high school player in the country, uh, to the number one quarterback to move from Georgia or Florida or Tennessee or Hawaii or wherever to play at Texas. I'm going to move him to Austin, and then he's going to commit to, to, to the University of Texas. It's no different. It's no different than if an Alabama car dealer reached out to Tua's family and moved Tua all the way down to Alabama uh, to, so that, to make sure that he played at Alabama. It's no different. And then, oh, by the way, I see all the media freaking out about, like, oh, he's a booster, he's this, he's that. It's like, yeah, but he's also now the head coach. I mean, can you imagine? And this was one of my favorite parts was Memphis fans like, oh, well, I mean, if he had committed to Kentucky, this would he'd be eligible right now. It's like, yeah, he would be eligible. You know why? Because the head coach of the University of Kentucky wouldn't have moved him across the state to Lexington to play at Kentucky or Duke or Kansas. Like, can you imagine if Mike Krzyzewski had personally personally out of his own checking account paid to bring Zion Williamson to Duke that would be the biggest story in college sports same with John Calipari now the difference is and this is where it gets interesting this is where it gets complicated and this is where I'm going to tell you right now point blank I'm going to start to give you information that nobody else is going to give you where it gets interesting and where I think Memphis's ultimate argument is going to be to get James Wiseman eligible is very simple is, well, I mean, Penny Hardaway was the high school coach. He was just doing the kid a favor. He was helping the family move to get closer to their daughter. He had no idea that he was eventually going to be the Memphis head coach. And like to a degree, I think that's reasonably fair. And I think it's a half decent argument because I do think common sense would say like, dude, Penny Hardaway's a high school coach. There's no way he's going to know that Tubby Smith is going to crash and burn. And there's no way that he is going to know that, that Tubby Smith is going to get fired, which will allow him to get that job. That makes perfect sense, right? And so that's what Memphis's argument is going to be. He was a high school coach. He was helping a high school kid. He had no idea he was going to be a college coach. Here's where I don't buy it. Here's where the insider information comes in. Because to fully understand how Penny Hardaway got that job, this is what you need to know. You need to know kind of the political things that Penny Hardaway did behind the scenes to get that job. And then I'm going to get into some other political things that are even crazier. But the political things 
that Penny Hardaway did to get the job are very simple. Penny Hardaway, as part of being an AAU coach, he basically boxed in all the best players in Memphis under his umbrella. So as I just mentioned, they played for Team Penny during the summer, which was his AAU program. They then played for his high school team during the high school season. And so you had a situation where if you wanted one of those players, any of the players, you had to go through Penny Hardaway because all the good players in Memphis were playing for Penny Hardaway all high school season long in high school ball and then all AAU season long in AAU ball. And by the way, I don't criticize, I'm not criticizing Penny Hardaway for that. That's what a lot of guys do behind the scenes. Now, he did it to an extreme level because he was the AAU coach and the high school coach. But listen, it's not uncommon for a high school coach to only let his high school kids play for an AAU program where there's kind of a symbiotic relationship or vice versa. AAU coaches will send their players to a high school coach that they know they can trust. They know nobody else will get access to those players. It's unfortunate, but that's how things really work in college basketball. Penny Hardaway had access to these kids 365 days a year. And so while it's easy to say that there's no way that you could have known that Tubby Smith was going to get fired, here's the truth. Penny Hardaway put Memphis in an almost impossible situation where they had no choice but to fire Tubby Smith. Now, that's not to say that definitively there was no way that Penny Hardaway uh, was going to get the Memphis job. But what Penny Hardaway basically did, whether he explicitly said it or whether it was unexplicitly said, was like, dude, Memphis, I don't care who the coach is, but certainly not this Tubby Smith guy. I don't like this Tubby Smith guy. But unless I'm the coach at Memphis, all these players are coming up and playing in my AAU program. They're playing in my high school program. And none of these guys are going to Memphis unless you name me the head coach or at the very least bring me on the staff. And I, I've heard differing things of whether Penny was interested in being an assistant with Tubby Smith and Tubby just said no, which shame on Tubby Smith. That's kind of a dumb move in, in my personal opinion. Um, or whether he wanted the head coaching job from the beginning. But what happened was he put Memphis in an impossible situation where he said, you want the best players, you got to go through me. I don't know if he ever explicitly said that, but it was the thing that was kind of commonly known around Memphis. So imagine the position that Tubby Smith is in. Imagine the position that Memphis is in. To take it a, like a different direction, just, just let me explain it from a, a broader perspective. We all know like Indiana, since Archie Miller has gotten that in Indiana job, his number one priority, keep the best players at Indiana home. Well, imagine if every good player in Indiana played for the same high school coach and the same AAU coach, and that high school and AAU coach said, we're not giving any of us, none of our best players are going to the University of Indiana. Or the best players in LA, they're not going to UCLA. That puts the school in the position of like, man, if my guy can't recruit Indiana, my guy can't recruit LA, we're probably not going to win here. And so it's easy for Penny to say, well, <laughs> I didn't, how was I going to get the head coaching job? I was just a high school coach. I was just hanging out coaching AAU ball. But there were reasons to believe that Penny Hardaway was positioning himself to get the Memphis head coaching job, uh, which is what makes this whole complicated because that's what Memphis is going to say. Well, how could, he, how could we know he was going to get the job? He was just helping out a high school kid while Penny was very much positioning himself to get this job and very much, listen, I, no one knows Penny's intentions except for Penny. And so I'm not going to accuse him, not accuse him. But I will say it does make you more attractive. If you're trying to angle to get the Memphis job, it makes you a heck of a lot more attractive if you know you can bring the number one high school player in the country. 
And so I'm not saying he doesn't have a great relationship with James Wiseman. I'm not saying the family doesn't trust him. But there was also a lot to gain besides goodwill for Penny Hardaway to bring James Wiseman to Memphis. Makes you that much more appealing as a Memphis coach. Now, this is where it's going to get really interesting. This is where I'm going to give you information that nobody else has because this is the fascinating part of the story to me. Why did this information come out now? Because Memphis is saying, and I think accurately, for people who don't understand the, the, the NCA process, when a kid commits to a college, signs a letter of intent, they have to go through the NCA clearinghouse. I talked about this a little bit a few weeks ago with Infali Dante at Oregon, but basically at that point, what you have to do is you go through the NCAA clearinghouse, and every player goes through it. Tyrese Maxey went through it. Cole Anthony went through it. Zion Williamson went through it. Football players go through it, whatever. And the NCAA basically looks at all your stuff and kind of figures out, like, is there anything that we need to be worried about here, right? So like in Folly Dante, I brought him up a few weeks ago. Well, that was a guy that made up a year's worth of high school in a couple months from another country, doesn't speak English. And again, I credit the kid. He's a hard worker. He seems like a really good kid. But the NCAA was kind of like, I don't know, man. There's something that doesn't really seem right here. And so James Wiseman apparently went through that clearinghouse process in May, was cleared by the NCAA, and then over the last couple weeks, something came up that the NCAA kind of was like, we better go back and look at this a little bit deeper, and that's where they found this information. This is where I think it gets really, 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 really interesting is I think it's no secret, right? Like Penny Hardaway had the number one recruiting class in the country last year. Uh, James Wiseman was kind of the, 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 the star. There was a couple other players from Memphis, Malcolm Dandridge, uh, DJ Jeffries, who was originally committed to Kentucky. They also recruited very well outside of Memphis. Precious Achua, McDonald's All-American. Boogie Ellis was committed to Duke. But that's where it gets interesting to me. And this is where I was working the phones all day Friday and I kind of put, kind of put the pieces of the puzzle together. Is that Penny Hardaway... And the process of putting together this recruiting class, think about what I just said. So first of all, before he even got the job, he pissed off Tubby Smith and all of Tubby Smith's supporters because they're all like, dude, and I don't know how many supporters Tubby Smith has, but like the old school coaches are like, dude, this guy just, you know, he boxed out Tubby Smith out of his job and never gave Tubby Smith a chance to succeed, right? So you have Tubby Smith and his supporters not very happy with Penny Hardaway. But then think about what I said. Think about this. DJ Jeffries originally committed to Kentucky, ends up committing, decommitting, going to Memphis. Boogie Ellis, originally committed to Duke, decommits. Now, part of Boogie Ellis's decommitment was, actually, DJ Jeffries, they took a couple players at the same position, Khalil Whitney, but Boogie Ellis, same deal. Trey Jones decides to come back, Boogie Ellis decommits, but still, was supposed to go to Duke. Precious Achua, for most of his recruitment was all over the place, but the final few weeks, it seemed like he was going to North Carolina. Ends up going to Memphis. Why do I bring all that up? Duke, Kentucky, Memphis. Duke, Kentucky, North Carolina. What do they all have in common? They're all blue bloods. They all have very powerful Hall of Fame coaches. And I want to make one thing clear here. I'm not saying that Penny Hardaway tampered to get those players. I'm not saying he cheated. I'm not saying he gave them extra benefits to come to Memphis. I'm also not saying that it was Duke, that it was Kentucky, that it was North Carolina that was the one that kind of said, hey, we got you, you better look a little closer to that James Wiseman recruitment. What I am saying, though, is this. In the process of building off that, building that number one recruiting class, Penny Hardaway pissed a lot of people off. 
He pissed a lot of people off. That's a lot of power behind the scenes that you pissed off. And I'm not saying it was definitively Duke, and I'm not saying it was definitively Kentucky, and I'm not saying it was definitively North Carolina. But you're talking about some of the major players behind the scenes in college basketball. We're talking about four Hall of Fame coaches, if you include Tubby Smith, four national championship coaches, if you include Tubby Smith, a lot of big people behind the scenes. And he pissed a lot of people off. And so to me, the question becomes, why did this come out? Somebody wasn't happy that Penny Hardaway was getting too, he was getting too good too fast. It's almost like Will Wade last year, right? Remember Will Wade, number one recruiting class, and all of a sudden you start hearing stuff and stuff gets leaked to Yahoo and stuff gets leaked here, and it's like, Will Wade, no, 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 no. You think you're doing a little too good, a little too fast here, and we don't like it. And I think it was the same thing with Penny Hardaway. You're getting a little too good, a little too fast, and he took a kid from Duke, and he took a kid from Kentucky, and you took a kid who everybody thought was going to North Carolina, and you got the number one player in the country, and you pissed off the former head coach who was a national champion. Yeah, you're getting a little too good too fast here. And so I think somebody who had insider information, and by the way, I should backtrack, I had heard behind the scenes, and I think a lot of people who covered college basketball behind the scenes, that like, yeah, Penny personally helped the Wiseman family get to Memphis, um, and apparently it wasn't a big secret because Penny even admitted to that the other day, but I think somebody from either one of these powers or a power broker was like, dude, NCAA, you got to look a little bit more into this um, because like, come on, man, like number one player in the country. And I also think, again, it's a little bit of a credit to Penny. Got a little too good, a little too fast, ruffled a little too many feathers a little too quickly. And to take it one step further, I'll say this. I do think, and this is in defense of Penny, I think he's been a really good coach. And I think there are people behind the scenes that were a little like, dude, if this thing works with James Wiseman this year, and this thing works with Boogie Ellis this year, and he's already kind of tampering to get players, and they go to like the Elite Eight, and James Wiseman ends up as the number one pick in the draft, and Precious Achua is number nine overall, and Boogie Ellis is a first-round pick, like, there's a lot of people that are like, I don't like like this thing could start snowballing and Memphis could be a real thorn in our side. And so somebody behind the scenes, I just believe, gave some information to the NCA that made them change this ruling. Now, what'll be interesting is what happens going forward. And I'll tell you this, full disclosure, I did a periscope on Friday. Um, didn't have all the information. My opinions changed a little bit. I said, you know, I don't know how Wiseman ever plays again. I don't know how Penny coaches, but a couple things. I think that Memphis is going to try really, really, really hard to paint this as a picture of a, a high school coach trying to do good by the kid. He has no idea that he's ever going to be the head coach of the University of Memphis and that whatever. And then James Wiseman will volunteer to pay back the money and we'll see what will happen from there. I saw Jeff Goodman actually put out kind of a pretty good tweet where there was a player at BYU a few years ago. He took about $10,000 worth of, of money and he ended up paying it back, and I think he was suspended nine games or 12 games or something like that. Um, so I said in my Periscope, there's no way he plays. There's no way Penny coaches going forward. Listen, they're going to they're gonna play the innocence card of like, I had no idea. And like, you know, the family will figure out a way to cut a check, give back some of the money. And I'm not sold that James Wiseman is ruled permanently ineligible. But what I will also say... Memphis did themselves no favors by playing him on Friday. And I get it. Everybody on Twitter wants to be so cool and F the NCAA and they should and this and that. 
Well, one, the NCAA is not going to be happy that they're playing him. But two, I'm also going to add this. This is such a unique, different story than anything that I can ever remember in this sense. And I'll tell you why. So by playing James Wiseman when he's already ruled ineligible, this is unprecedented, right? And, and I saw this on Twitter, and I think people are getting this very confused. People are saying, well, you know, if you play a player and he's ruled ineligible, you have to forfeit the wins. That's true, but that ain't what's going on right now. This is not what traditionally happens. What traditionally happens is say, well, let's go back to LSU for a second. So this report comes out that Will Wade, big-ass offer, huge-ass offer to Javante Smart. LSU ends up sitting Javante Smart for a game before the NCAA has even had a chance to investigate. They go through whatever financial records, and they feel comfortable saying, the NCAA isn't going to find anything, we're going to play him. That's not what happened here, though. In that case, the NCAA would still have to investigate Javante Smart, and then if they did find anything illegal, then LSU would be punished for playing Javante Smart. What happened here, James Wiseman has already been ruled ineligible. He's already been ruled ineligible. In the Javante Smart case, in Silvio D'Souza, in those cases... There was a report came out that something may have happened and they held him out for precaution. Javante Smart, before he was ever investigated, they held him out to be safe. James Wiseman's already been investigated. And so my understanding, and I could be wrong, and I've actually reached out to the NCAA to try to get clarification, is because he is ineligible, unless he is ruled eligible at some point, any game that he plays is going to have to be forfeited because this isn't taking a precautionary step and holding him out or this isn't you know waiting for the facts to come out. The facts have apparently already come out and he is ineligible. And so what I'm confused by is are they forfeiting these games in real time because of the fact that he's an ineligible player and then will the NCA so the NCA retroactively takes away losses. In this case will the NCA retroactively add wins if Wiseman is proved to be eligible? I don't know. I don't have a good answer. And that's what's so fascinating to me. And this is what I want to get clarified. I'm on ESPN.com right now. It says Memphis is 2-0. But they, they played an ineligible player against UCI. So technically, they should be 1-1. One and, one. and so that's what's fascinating. But I will say in the bigger picture, it does just come down to very simply exactly what I said, is that there is just there is nothing quite like this. Memphis is going to fight it. But we've never seen anything like this in college basketball in the sense where a player was already ruled ineligible and you continue to play him. And I'll say this. I think everyone thinks it's, oh, it's so brave from Memphis and screw the NCAA. I don't think it's that cool, man, because I'll tell you why. If I'm one of the other players that's been working hard all summer and busting my butt and I'm trying to get to the NCAA tournament and my coach is playing an ineligible player, and we're going to have to forfeit all those wins, and we're not going to be eligible for the tournament in March, I'm pretty pissed. And by the way, you know who else I'm pissed off is? If I'm a coach in this conference, and I got a coach against this guy, and I might lose my job because I lose to him twice when he's playing an ineligible player. And this is the part that bothers me, right? The, the media is like, oh, James Wiseman, it's not fair. He should be able to play. No, you know who it's unfair to? It's unfair to the AAC coach that has to go against James Wiseman twice and might lose his job if they, they lose to Memphis because that coach isn't willing to cheat for players. 
It's unfair to say Kentucky, if Kentucky plays Memphis in the Final Four and their season ends because they weren't willing to cheat to get James Wiseman, they weren't willing to pay money to get it, to move his family all over the country. Same with Duke, same with Carolina, same with anybody. Kansas, who was recruiting James Wiseman. So I just bring this up because these narratives are such bull you-know-what. I'm trying to stay calm. I know there's kids in the car. This is a family show. Um... But, like, this idea that it's not fair to James Wiseman. No, it's not fair to the teams that have to go up against him that weren't going to cheat for him. But I'll be fascinated to see what happens. I'll be fascinated to see if the school steps in or if the conference steps in because the conference also has a stake too here. Because if Memphis is playing an ineligible player and Memphis is going to have to forfeit all these wins, you think the conference wants Memphis playing Cincinnati and Wichita State and uh, Houston and UConn and giving them all losses and potentially costing those teams tournament bids? No. So I do think somebody's going to step in. I do think until this is re resolved, James Wiseman is eventually going to sit. Maybe he'll play against Oregon. I do think eventually he is going to sit, though. I'm not saying it's totally fair to the kid, but these are the rules. And you break the rules, you have to be punished for them. But I do think that, first of all, that's the behind-the-scenes stuff. And I'd add to it um, that I do think that Memphis's argument is going to be to the NCAA, like, dude, this was a guy helping a, a kid he had no idea he was ever going to be the head coach at the University of Memphis. I don't know if it'll fly with the NCAA. I do hope they punish him adequately. I hope they punish Penny. I hope they punish James Wiseman. But listen, also selfishly, I kind of want to see James Wiseman play, but we can't act as though rules weren't broken. All right. Whew. Great episode today. Guys, I told you at the top, like, there are some days where it's like, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. There are other days where it's like, dude, AT is on fire. And your kid, your boy was on fire. That is all. I got to run. I got to get to the airport like I told you at the top of the show. Please make sure to subscribe to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. You do it on iTunes, Podcast Addict, Podbean, TuneIn Radio, Spotify. Rate and review the show. You better give me a good rating after today. I just delivered an hour of scintillating, juicy, gossipy content. Uh, this is one of the best shows that I've ever done. Also, rate and review the show, as I just said. Five stars. Follow me on Instagram. The least you can do, click that like button on Instagram after everything I'm doing for you. Aaron underscore Torres underscore sports underscore podcast. And of course, Aaron Torres podcast questions at gmail.com. I'll be back later this week. Probably talk more college hoops this week. So much to get into. James Wiseman and beyond. Uh, Washington was awesome. My boy Cole Anthony was awesome. I'm awesome. That's all for today. I'll be back later this week. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.